You are listening to a Crosspoint Peachtree City podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. As I mentioned, uh, this morning brings us to the the conclusion of uh, Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia, which acts as something of a a summary of the entire letter. It's a little different than the closing remarks in some of Paul's other letters. Uh, As we've seen, this letter is something of an impassioned rebuke. The Galatians having turned an ear to the, the siren song of false teachers, whose message Paul has brilliantly exposed and contrasted with the true gospel now for several chapters through some of the most complex argumentation in all of his New Testament writings. Understanding what's at stake, Paul does, to be nothing less than a fight for true and lasting freedom and joy. The general argument, as we talked about from the beginning of our study of this book, being that some were insisting that the Galatian Gentiles be circumcised and submit to the Mosaic law in order to have right legal standing with God and in order to be counted among the true people of God. Having been freed from the enslaving power of idols, they were being tempted to trade one form of enslavement for another, stepping out of the the shackles of sin and idolatry only to step into the new yoke of legalism. Paul pleading with the Galatians that they continue the Christian life the way they began it, not in cross-diminishing spirit-abandoning self-reliance, but in cross-clinging spirit-reliant faith, which as we've seen going back to a couple weeks ago, is no peacetime endeavor, right? There's a war within between the flesh and the, the spirit, the daily temptation for us to turn to the enslaving idols of our own day, or perhaps the, the treadmill of self-wrought religious performance. And yet, like Israel in the wilderness, we have everything we, we need as we journey through our own wilderness on our way to glory. We have Christ to sustain us, the true bread which came down from heaven. We have the Holy Spirit to lead, guide, and empower us, the living water whom Jesus gives to, to those who belong to him. Paul exhorting believers to abide in the one to whom we belong. He is the vine, we are the branches. And to walk in the guidance and power of the one who dwells us, the third person of the triune God. And that in doing so, we will bear the fruit of Christ's likeness, the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Going back to chapter 5 which is anything but vague in its expression, right? Worked out going back to last week in the context of biblical community with real people, real situations, real time. So that one of the litmus tests regarding whether a church is, is spirit-led and spirit-filled is if there are healthy, God-honoring relationships within the body of believers. As the, the spirit-led, spirit-filled church is a one-anothering church giving visible expression to the the life-transforming love of God in Jesus Christ. Again, Paul's parting words, as we'll see this morning, acting as something of a summary of the, the major themes of this letter. If you pick up in verse 11, Paul says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. 
Right? Oftentimes, the, the apostles would dictate their letters to what was known as an amanuensis or, or secretary who would then write down what the apostles said, which perhaps maybe Paul had, had uh, done up to this point in the letter only now to, to take up the pen himself and recording his parting words. Maybe giving the letter something of a mark of authenticity, Paul's signature, so to speak. Another possibility being that perhaps Paul wrote the entire letter himself from beginning to end, in this case, choosing not to dictate anything. Either way, Paul here highlighting that he, he did, in fact, put pen to parchment in some capacity. Some scholars uh, believing Paul to be drawing attention to the marks of suffering that he bore for the sake of the gospel. We saw him allude to that back in chapter 4. Perhaps having written this letter in a state of near blindedness with wounded hands from the many beatings he had suffered. Hence the large letters and his struggle to, to record these words. Others believing uh, Paul with large letters to be emphasizing the significance of what's at stake. Like the first century version of writing in all caps, you might say. The safeguarding of a big gospel requiring big letters. He goes on in, in verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised, that is the Judaizers, do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. As we've seen, even going back to the first chapter of this letter, the, the false teachers in Galatia, they were, they were man-pleasers. Not only chasing after the approval of, of those around them, but seeking to avoid the dangers of persecution. Such motivations informing the, the substance of their teaching and exhorting the Galatians to circumcision and the keeping of the law. Removing the offense of the cross, as we've talked about throughout this letter which stands, the cross does, as an affront to all notions of personal achievement or merit where salvation is in view. John Stott, in his commentary, he says, And what is it about the cross of Christ which so angers the world and stirs people up to persecute those who preach it? Just this. Christ died on the cross for us sinners, becoming a curse for us. So the cross tells us some very unwelcome truths about ourselves. Namely, that we are sinners under the righteous curse of God's law and we cannot save ourselves. Christ bore our, our sin and curse precisely because we could be set free from them in no other way. If we could have been forgiven by our own good works, by being circumcised and keeping the law, we may be quite sure that there would have been no cross. He goes on to say, Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to say to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. Nothing in history, he says, or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there, he says, at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. Right, man wants a, a gospel that commends him, that makes him feel good, even great about himself. But such a gospel is no gospel. 
as Paul has argued throughout this letter, the true gospel declaring that all are sinners in need of a Savior and that Christ Jesus is that Savior whose death is sufficient to make atonement. A message that offends human pride, at times bringing persecution upon the messenger. The false teachers in Galatia uh, opting for a more palatable message, one adding human achievement and merit to the redemptive work of Jesus. Not only that they might avoid persecution, but that they might boast in their many converts. Right? It's, it's not unlike a modern-day pastor who brags about the size of his church. In the case of the false teachers in Galatia, having failed, they themselves, verse 13, to keep the very law that they were calling others to rely upon for right standing with God. Boasting, they were, though they had severed themselves from Christ. As Tim Keller writes in his commentary, he says, A religion based on externals and behavior as a way of salvation may prompt pride and bring popularity, but it cannot deliver the eternal life it promises. And it's, it's not that those false teachers shouldn't have boasted, but rather that their boasting was misplaced. As Paul goes on to say in verse 14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul's boast, not in his intelligence, not in his gifting, not in his popularity, not in his influence, neither in his own lengthy list of heritage-related and religious accolades, going to another book of the Bible, another letter that Paul wrote, Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. He says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, but whatever gain I had, Paul says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. And he's talking about his resume here. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Conservative Jewish upbringing, check. Education at the feet of Gamaliel, the most prominent rabbi of his day, check. Zeal for the law, check. Persecution of Christians whom he had considered apostate Jews, check. Right? No one had more reason for confidence in the flesh than this Hebrew of Hebrews. And yet, Paul declares, my boast is in the cross of Christ having placed all of his confidence in the redemptive work of Jesus, who redeemed us, uh, chapter 3, verse 13, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Cursed for our blessing. That is for those who trust in him for salvation, those who are united to him by faith. Counted as Abraham's offspring in Christ, chapter 3, verse 29, heirs according to the promise. Philip Graham Ryken in his commentary says, 
The cross of Christ is the all-sufficient ground for the salvation of sinners. It claims to be sturdy enough to support the whole weight of our guilt all by itself. Therefore, he says, to boast in the cross properly at all is to boast in the cross alone. In the words of the well-known hymn writer Isaac Watts, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. A boast that Paul makes plain that we make not only with our lips, but too with our lives. Paul declared back in chapter 2, similar to what he says here, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul here declaring himself to have been crucified to the world, united with Christ in his death and resurrection. But two, notice, declaring the world to have been crucified to Paul. No longer enslaved to nor ruled by this world with devils filled. Going back to the, the very first week of this series, right? there's something about escaping captivity that captures the hearts and imaginations of people. Be it the, the many daring underwater escapes of Harry Houdini from his submersible iron-bound box, the stories of the many inmates throughout the history of Alcatraz who tried to escape that seemingly inescapable island prison, stories like the Count of Monte Cristo, the improbable escape of Edmond Dantes from the, the dreadful island fortress of the Chateau d'If, the, the, the condition of fallen man apart from Christ, in the possession of the strong man, Satan, the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2. As Charles Wesley once wrote, and we often sing, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Paul here declaring that, that we who would otherwise be shackled in darkness, get this imagery in your mind, have been rescued from those shackles and transferred to Jesus' good kingdom of light and life. Like Paul, no longer enslaved nor ruled by this world with devils filled. Freed not only from sin's penalty, but sin's power. Someday to be freed from sin's presence for all eternity. It's the greatest rescue story the world has ever known. As I've said before, any other rescue story working on borrowed capital from the one true story of redemption. Paul goes on to say, in verse 15, he says, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Right? These words, if you look back to chapter 5, verse 6, incredibly similar to that verse that we read a few weeks back, what Paul said earlier in this very same letter where he declared, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So that many scholars believe that that language of faith working through love, chapter 5, verse 6, to be synonymous with what Paul means by the language of a new creation here in chapter 6, verse 15. An inward change that, that, if genuine, evidences itself in love, through love. As Paul perhaps more famously says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God's miraculous, creational, illuminating work of regeneration, the new birth. This, what truly counts, Paul says. The old eye, dead and buried, chapter 2, verse 20. The new eye, Paul says, alive to Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. A new covenant, a new name, a new standing, a new home, a new indwelling power, a new destiny. Christ alive in me, Paul says. Living and abiding in his people, dwelling in our hearts through faith, Ephesians 3.17. Faith expressing itself in love because in Christ the new creation has dawned. Right? Paul's language of new creation here, perhaps too, and alluding to the hope of creation regained in a cosmic sense. Jesus, the true Israel of God, verse 16, who succeeded where Israel failed. Those united to him by faith counted as the true Israel of God who share in the blessings promised to Israel because of Jesus. Which Paul went to great lengths in chapter 3 to make plain, right? That those of faith are the sons of Abraham, chapter 3, verse 7. And are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, chapter 3, verse 9. The new creation having dawned through the death of Christ to be someday brought to its consummation when he returns... And oh, we'll spend a lot of time on that this Advent season. On that day when the creation itself will be set free, Romans 8.21, from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul continues in his closing of this letter. He says in verse 17, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Paul here uh, exhorting his opponents to, to lay down their arms as one bearing on his body the marks of Jesus and the true gospel. The scars that Paul bore as one united to Christ and committed to the preaching of Christ crucified. As he expounds upon more deeply in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, are, are they servants of Christ, my opponents? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. We could stop there and that would be horrific suffering. Three times, he says, I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys Listen to how many times the word danger comes up here. In danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness. If he lived in our day, danger in the suburbs, right in between. Danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Paul lived much of his apostolic life in the furnace of affliction, including the many floggings at the hands of the Jews and the many beatings at the hands of the Romans, 
including his imprisonment with Silas and Philippi, along with the many other imprisonments he experienced, including the many riots that ensued in the wake of Paul's preaching of the gospel, the most famous perhaps being the one that broke out in the city of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, including his laboring as a tent maker and a church planter, along with the sleeplessness and hunger that he oftentimes experienced along the way. Consider this, between the, the lashes, the beatings, the stoning, and the shipwrecks, we're talking about roughly a dozen near-death experiences. That's crazy. And here Paul boasts in the scar tissue acquired in following and serving Jesus. It's absolute folly according to the world's standards. It's as foolish as wearing a cross around our neck, a symbol of execution and torture. John Calvin, in his commentary, says it this way. He says, For even as earthly warfare has its decorations with which generals honor the bravery of a soldier, so Christ our leader has his own marks of which he makes good use in decorating and honoring some of his followers. These marks, however, are very different from the others, he says. For they have the nature of the cross, and in the sight of the world, they are disgraceful. Right? Many who stood in opposition to the Apostle Paul saw his sufferings as something of a ministry disqualifier. When his endurance and suffering was actually a declaration of the beauty of the true gospel and the sufficiency of Christ. Paul understanding his moments of suffering to be opportunities a chance to put the supreme worth of Jesus on display for a watching world so that God might get the glory, his power made perfect in weakness. Paul had the mark of circumcision as a Jew, but more than that, he had the true mark of sharing in Christ's sufferings. His scars, not at all disgraceful in the eyes of God, dear and precious, in fact as are the scars that any of us bear for the sake of Jesus Christ, by which he shows his grace to be sufficient. May that be encouraging to you as you consider your scars. Paul closes out this letter in the most fitting way that he possibly could on the basis of what's at stake here. He says in verse 18, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. So be it. It's a fitting conclusion because the the Galatians were in danger, many of them, of falling away from grace. Chapter 5, verse 4. Here Paul speaking a word of blessing over them that the grace of God be with them. Calling them brothers. Notice that. In in trust that they were indeed children of the promise. In summing up this incredible book of the Bible... J.V. Fesco in his commentary, one of the better commentaries on this book of the Bible, he says, Freed from the bondage of the curse of the law, God sends the Spirit of Christ into our hearts so that we manifest his fruit to the blessing of our neighbors and the glory of our triune God. In this way, we all, Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, are sons of God, sons of Abraham, the Israel of God, This is the message, he says, that God impressed on the hearts of the Galatians through Paul's preaching and teaching, and it is the message that we should treasure in our hearts.
Paul's letter to the Galatians, an explosion of joy and freedom. The epistle, the New Testament letter of the soul set free. Perhaps for some, today is the day of new creation, to use Paul's language in this passage. The first true experience of new birth, of a soul set free in Christ. Turn to him, trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. Fall at his feet as Lord and King. For many of us, perhaps an opportunity to yet again live in the sweetness of freedom and joy. A freedom and joy, a grace and peace that can only be found in Jesus, who gave himself for our sins, chapter 1, to deliver us from the present evil age. So I think Paul would close out our time in this book of the Bible saying, let us continue the Christian life the way we began it. Again, not in cross-diminishing spirit, abandoning self-reliance, but in cross-clinging spirit-reliant faith. Abiding in the one to whom we belong, walking in the guidance and power of the one who indwells us, trusting that in doing so, we will bear the fruit of Christ's likeness. We don't have to force it. It will come, and it will come to the everlasting praise of God's glorious grace. In a moment, we get an opportunity to to worship with our song. As we talk about from time to time, C.S. Lewis and his reflection on the Psalms, he, he makes the point that uh, worship is not complete until we get it out of us. Like it must be sung in order to actually complete the joy. So we get an opportunity. If Paul's calling us to, to true joy and freedom rather than despair and enslavement, we get an opportunity to get it out of us, the joy that the gospel brings. to sit and to wrestle with the question of where, where, am I, uh, where is my propensity to lean into the, the pride and the despair and the enslavement of, of licentiousness or legalism, whatever, whatever ditch our propensity might be to veer into and to repent and confess that and to turn to, to the Lord yet again and say, I don't, I don't want those shackles. And to hear God saying, you don't have to go back to them. You don't have to live that way. I freed your hands. You can lift them in praise. My glorious grace. Also have an opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper. If you're not a Christian, I would encourage you not to receive of the bread and the cup, but that your next step, again, would be one of repentance and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. If you want to talk about that, if you're going, I don't even know what you, what does that mean? Um, find me. Let's connect back of the auditorium or sometime outside of gatherings like these. would love to talk more about that with you. If you are a Christian, as you know, uh, we take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus. And we dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. As you prepare to receive of those elements, just a couple of things come to mind in terms of the imagery of this passage in this book of the Bible. We just encourage you to sit for a moment before you take in the bread and the cup and, and consider some of those examples of escape from captivity that we talked about this morning and throughout this series and to recognize that it is through the cross of Jesus Christ that the key has been put in those shackles and we have been set free. And with that, to see the marks of Jesus for the beauty that's there for the freedom and joy that are ours. 
because of his marks. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.